that determined individuality, um, and in Jim's case, with a sparkle of fun, you know, creates a character that you can spend a lot of time with in Breakthrough and that you feel a sense of care and you feel empathy, not only for, but you feel empathy from. And so I don't think we could have made Breakthrough without Jim. And I don't think we would have wanted to. That was Bill Haney, director, writer, and producer of the documentary, Jim Allison Breakthrough. I'm Alexandria Carolyn, a reporter with The Cancer Letter and associate editor of The Cancer History Project. Jim Allison Breakthrough, released in 2019, tells the story of 2018 Nobel Prize winner Jim Allison's quest to cure cancer and the development of ipilimumab. While the film was in post-production, it was announced that Jim Allison won the Nobel Prize. The team went to Stockholm to capture footage of the Nobel Prize ceremony and included the footage in the film. I just want to kind of start from the beginning and talk about what initially drew you to science, sort of at the beginnings of your career. Curiosity, I think. Mm. Um, I've always been interested in imagination, invention, um, exploration, discovery. Those things are, of course, part of varied parts of life, but, um, but importantly, part of science. And, um, you know, kind of reimagining the world around us is, um, you know, it's something that you can do in the arts, of course, and your sounds like you're doing it yourself. But the science is importantly too, and there's such a potent force impacting um, society generally, and they can be such a constructive force. So some of it was that, and then probably some of it was my father was a chemist, and, um, you know, in the way that we always imagine we're striking entirely our own path and after a while come to discover maybe maybe it wasn't entirely our own. <laughs> the, um, maybe there was a bit of that, too. I, I was looking into the sorts of businesses um, you've started and have led and um, currently lead. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of these have been rooted in green initiatives. Um, I, I think the first one there was reducing air pollution in power plants and more recently low carbon footprint homes. Um, what what led you to this interest in sustainability? Well, I think um, I've been interested in environmentalism for a long time, in part because we need it. You know, I mean, there's a hundred billion billion known galaxies. We know one planet that sustains life, and we're running a giant experiment on it right now. So there was that. Then I, you know, I grew up at a monastery. I grew up at a Benedictine monastery in Rhode Island, where my father taught chemistry on this 500 acre campus that was or is actually, you know, um, but started as the, the monastery's mission was education. And the Benedictine ethos, which is a lot about man in harmony with nature, I think also crept into me. So this combination of an interest in science and the interest in making sure that our, you know, that our great grandchildren inherit a natural world similar to the one we inherited from our great grandparents. You know, those two things, I think, started a lot of this for me. And I did, as you say, I be, and then, you know, I began, um, I was poor. So um, I started in business partially because I, I think of capitalism, you know, as a powerful engine, not, not a moral force, unfortunately, but a powerful engine and that can be directed towards uh, constructive and principled outcomes. So the combination of this powerful force and the social need and the chance to use science in a constructive way, I think motivated me then and kind of does now. So if there's a through line for me, it's what you're describing. You know, I, I, um, I'm interested in finding ways to 
develop using the inventive tools and kind of discipline and constructive community of science ways for society to be healthier for individuals, communities, countries. Started with the air pollution control stuff that you described uh, and the eco-friendly housing approach to, you know, could we transform housing so the carbon footprint would be lower and the indoor air toxics would be lower and we'd just be healthier for mom to raise her kids in and led me to the biotechs I now run where we're trying to cure uh, breast cancer and lung cancer and Alzheimer's. That's fantastic. How do these initiatives of yours, these business ventures, um, and, and your work, you know, in biotech uh, overlap with your creative works as a writer and a filmmaker? I think that they're two halves of the same coin. You know, one of the ways I think about it is that the U.S. Constitution, the, you know, the blessed force that reinvigorated modern democracy 200 and almost 50 years ago, it only codifies one right for Americans. Those come later in the Bill of Rights. The Constitution itself protects one right, and that's the right of a creative individual to the intellectual property that is the result of their imagination, copyright and patent. I think it's, I think if you ask, you know, when you're up in New Hampshire, you ask the next 10 people you talk to to name 10 creative Americans, I dare say that they will name singers and actors, directors and playwrights, theater uh, directors and novelists, poets. I wonder how many will name a scientist. But, um, but for me, these are just the same creative mind, you know, ideally purposeful, structured, capable, muscular, you know, affects each of these things the same. And uh, so I'm interested in both. I, I find both fascinating. I, you know, I, I feel like um, to not be doing um, creative work isn't really, isn't emotionally sustainable. And then once it's in creative work, I think to think only about science or only about poetry would be like going for a run with only one leg. So I'm kind of interested, like that old GE expression, bringing new ideas to life. And whether the new idea is a screenplay, a play, a nonprofit, an invention, a company, you know, those are really just the tools of the moment. I'm curious, um, you, I thought that was really interesting how you mentioned, you know, speak with anyone, the next 10 people you speak with, they'll probably name a singer and artist. Is that part of why, what got you into producing a documentary about Jim Allison to sort of bring that name recognition there? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, Jim Allison was something like my 15th or 16th movie. And so a couple of things affected the decision. Maybe let's just say four. <laughs> the first was um, the world around me that I see. If you took some of my earlier just documentaries, not narrative films, I made a movie uh, called The Last Mountain in um, Appalachia. And there was a fight for the last great mountain in central Appalachia between the mining companies who had been using the explosive power of Hiroshima bomb every week for a decade and had blown up thousands of mountains in Appalachia. Oh rubble in the streams. And... Um, there was a fight for the last big mountain left between them and the locals who wanted to build a wind farm. And that of course was both explicitly a story and metaphorically a story. And you can probably imagine, different people would think about that differently, but you can imagine who feels like the good guy in this David and Goliath tale. But those kind of films, you know, in a, in a way that I didn't intend because they reflected, you know, to some extent what I just discovered before me, um, they were playing into an increasingly polarized America where the story started to fall on this left, right, black, white, red, blue, north, south divide all the time. And I, 
I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the United States of America. And the key word there to me is the United part. And I started looking for a story that where the enemy wouldn't be one of us. And um, so part of what drew me to the story about Jim is that the enemy, the bad guy is cancer. And that there, one thing the beautiful diversity of America can agree on is that there's nobody who's pro-cancer. And that by having a common enemy, we could find our you know, common humanity maybe through the film. So that was part of what drew me to it. But here we are at a moment where, you know, not for all patients and not for all cancers, but for some patients and some cancers, they're really cures. And so at a time when there's a lot of pessimism about global climate change and income inequality and uh, immigration challenges and the nature of democracy in America, for goodness sakes, here is a really optimistic tale where something we've been trying for 5,000 years to work on, we've, we've succeeding. And then there's the tale of teamwork because you know when I was a kid, the idea of curing cancer was kind of a joke. My mother would say to me if I was late to dinner, what were you out curing cancer? You know, get into the table because nobody was expecting that somebody was going to cure cancer. And yet, you know, Jim Allison and his extraordinary band of colleagues, because it's ultimately a story of teamwork, showed how with resilience and perspicacity and imagination and verve and courage and luck, and fortitude, you can actually solve big problems. So it's both a tale and a metaphor. And then finally, of course, there's just Jim, who is, you know, an extraordinary creative force, a true maverick. You know, if you read about Einstein, if you read Walter Isaacson's stuff on Einstein, for example, what he talks about is that he was um, irreverent, that he was a maverick, that he, even as a child, you know, was interested in the subject matter, but not in the bureaucracy that surrounded the subject matter. And willing to think differently, willing to be ostracized, willing, in his case, to go years and years and years, I mean, he becomes a Swiss patent clerk because he can't get a job as a professor because they won't give him a PhD because he won't write on the subjects they want. That determined individuality, um, and in Jim's case, with a sparkle of fun, you know, creates a character that you can spend a lot of time with in Breakthrough and that you feel a sense of care and you feel empathy, not only for, but you feel empathy from. And so I don't think we could have made breakthrough without Jim. And I don't think we would have wanted to. When was the moment that you decided that, okay, this is what this documentary is going to be about. This is going to be about Jim Allison and his team's quest. Did you always sort of, did you have the idea generally of immunotherapy or did it always start with Jim? I think I had, you know, like the fertilized ground, you know, I made a bunch of movies. I knew what I thematically was interested in. But, you know, absent the seed, there is no plant. Um, and so first it was, you know, Jim's willingness to be, you know, to be in a documentary as central as you, as Jim is in Breakthrough, it's a, there's a lot of exposure. Mm. So you have to trust, you either have to, and I think in this case, Jim did both, you either have to have a great deal of trust in the director and that their goal isn't, that their goal is ultimately constructive and accurate representation and not, gaffes and silliness and scathological mishigas. And you have to care about something bigger than yourself. You know, if you, and, and you doubtless are given your work, if you read Aristotle's rhetoric, the journey of a hero is about things bigger than themselves, right? That they take risks, increasing risks for something bigger than themselves. And that is the story of Jim Allison. 
And because it was, the story isn't about him and how do I look on camera and did I say something and are you going to ask my mother and then she's going to say something and I'm going to look bad and, you know, my people at work are going to give me grief. He just, he had no interest in any of that because he wasn't concerned about that because he wasn't concerned about himself. So that's what got me to know I was interested. But of course, I didn't know how he'd be on camera. You know, I've filmed a lot of folks and some fantastic people when the camera shows up, they freeze they're not emotionally open. They're not comfortable in a conversation. You know, you could tell immediately in a conversation who's stiff and who's not, right? So we went to Texas and uh, set up the system and began with Jim and had the first two days gone badly, I would have thrown it all away and done something else. And he proved to be as emotionally transparent as um, we need to have a journey of common humanity. And, and so what we really decided we were gonna stick with it was after we filmed him for the first, I don't know, two, three days. I mean, you're obviously not new to the world of oncology, given your work, but given that the topic of this documentary was so different from your previous work, what sorts of challenges did this documentary pose in, in producing it and, and making it? Well, it's a very complicated tale. So um, the first challenge is story structure, narrative structure. Essentially, we have four stories going forward in time you know, as uh, kind of master plots and subplots. And then we have one story going backwards in time. And so finding a way for that to feel like an integrated whole was important and challenging. I thought it was important to do it that way in part because I wanted to, to get to the human benefit. And I wanted to give the viewer a chance to kind of participate in the story as you might if you had cancer or somebody in your family had cancer. That required the kind of courageous um, Sharon Belvin to be in the film and then us to film her story in back order to the other story. So that was a challenge. Just narrative structure was complicated. Then of course, there's what level of science are you gonna represent? You know, I'm fortunate in a lot of ways because, um, you know, I fundamentally make the movie I wanna make and don't fret too much about uh, if the movie industry doesn't give it six rounds of applause because, it doesn't fit some traditional rubric. Bizarrely enough, the number of narrative feature films, uh, documentaries on a Nobel Prize winner ever in the sciences, I think is zero before this. I don't think it had ever been done. I haven't found one. It's, and I think part of the reason for that is where do you pitch the science? You know, if you ask Jim, hey, talk, talk, just make it a little simpler. He goes from genius to, you know, postdoc with 12 years experience. So, you know, trying to get that so identifying who I wanted the audience to be. And, and I wanted, I kept saying to Jim, I, imagine you're talking to a 12 year old girl. Imagine that she wants to have an honorable, creative, purposeful life. And imagine she's interested in the sciences, but she thinks it could be pretty dreary. And if you, you know, we want to talk it some way that's welcoming, how to do that, how to do the animation, how to cover this obviously um, complex biology but in a way that is available to viewers who aren't scientists. That's a, you know, that's a thin line to walk, right? Be accurate, but representative and to do it in a narrative way, not an expositional way. So you feel it more than you think it. So I would say, and then we made it very quickly. You know, Jim won the Nobel Prize the day, like literally we did our last day of filming on a Sunday in New York. And then Monday morning at 4 a.m. he won the Nobel Prize and that, made us want to accelerate finishing the films. So, um, you know, including going to Stockholm and doing, putting this thing in, we, we made the movie in about a year 
And um, that's a fast schedule for a doc, especially for somebody like me who's got a couple of the jobs. So the schedule, to, to make the schedule fit the, the unique circumstances of his award, you know, was also hard for me and the team and the, the team did great. What was your reaction when you learned that he won the Nobel and how did this influence the arc of the documentary? Well, very frankly, it didn't influence the arc of the documentary, the filmmaking at all, mm. other than it extended it, but the story had opened in the same way, it closed in the same way. Obviously we had different, somewhat different footage. Um, I think it amplified the footprint of the film. Mm. You know, our intention was not the most money for the film, our intention was the most viewers for the film. Mm. And so that, and partially it was for the, some of the work you're doing, you know, we have, and I was down giving a talk at MD Anderson recently and I sat next to a cancer survivor who decided to do immune oncology because he saw a breakthrough and got, thank God this poor man, you know, was in terrible straits and he's actually been in remission for five years now. That's great. And, or whatever, it's four years now. And um, I think that, so our intention with the film was to get it out get it to schools, get it to patients, get it to clinicians, get it to scientists who are explaining to their family what they do so they can work long hours on the next generation of immune oncology or, or some other uh, discovery. And, and Lois Vossen at PBS was very interested in the film and PBS is not the most lucrative place to screen your movie, but it does have a very big footprint because they screen it for free. And we we're really happy that we were the number one film on PBS last year in terms of viewers and the re and I think that's a good example where Jim winning the Nobel helped. So it didn't change the filmmaking, but it probably changed the footprint of the film. Um, was there anything about the film's reception that surprised you? I don't think so. You know, I mean, I think, as I say to you, I was surprised at how extraordinarily uncommon hmm. films in this environment are. So that surprised me. The environment of? Films about the sciences. Right. So that surprises me, the, the relatively little amount of films in. The reception of the film has been very, um, I'm grateful for. You know, we were in the middle of COVID, right? So um, all kinds of weird things happened or didn't happen or somewhat happened. You know, more people may have seen it streaming than they would have. It wasn't in theaters in America. It's like, it's opening in theaters in Germany, like this week. That's, uh, you know, a couple of years after we finished it. I would say there were moments of great generosity that I saw that I don't know if they surprised me, but I found really heartwarming. So Woody Harrelson narrates the movie. He does it for free. He couldn't have been more spectacular. He just did it because he believed in, he loved the movie and he believed in Jim and the story. And, um, and the reasons we wanted him were not his celebrity. We wanted him because he was from Texas and, and oh. because you know, Willie Nelson, Jim Allison and Woody Harrelson kind of represent a, a view of Texas and a ethos of Texas that you know, probably isn't the same one that Governor Abbott presently represents. Sure. And, um, and I think we saw a lot of generosity in that way. I think the number of people who really connected to, um, to the other scientists in the film, you know, was very heartwarming that they saw a good example is uh, Jim's extraordinary wife, you know, whose own individual journey is an utterly remarkable one um, from fleeing uh, Guyana at night under political threat because she was from a Muslim and uh, Hindu family and under, you know, ethnic cleansing pressure and her journey into America to become a gifted MD, PhD and clinician and work on the trials with Jim. You know, these things were heartwarming, um, but I wouldn't say surprising. 
Yeah, I thought the personal aspects of this film were what really moved it along um, and made you connect with the science. You actually stole my next question, which was just um, upcoming projects you could potentially tell us about. Could you elaborate on that upcoming documentary or is it kind of under wraps right now? Oh, I'm, I'm glad to tell you about it. The um, We're shooting two movies right now. One is a cross-country road trip movie and it's a coming of age story with actors and kind of in a different world than this. The second movie is a very, a really an extraordinary tale that starts with the um, broad rollout of the mRNA-based vaccines and then tracks back to the science and roots of both those drugs and the entire biotech revolution, which has gone, you know, in my lifetime from no employees in the world to millions from no drugs for patients to um, every American taking biotech derived drugs essentially every year um, and all play through the prism of another astonishing um, scientist, entrepreneur, thought leader named Phil Sharp, you know, who grew up in the tobacco fields of uh, coal country, uh, Kentucky, and um, in, a, in a long and circuitous route, um, won the Nobel Prize for discovering uh, how mRNA works, and then trained the next generation of scientists and started biotech firms and and uh, is kind of the godfather of the mRNA revolution. So we're having fun with that. And we, you know, we've been filming for a month or two, we, we film again all next week. That's great. Um, and is there anything else you'd like to add? Any behind the scenes fun facts about uh, Jim Allison breakthrough? Well, you know, I have a lot of reasons to thank Jim and he was very good with me and he, and he is very good with me. But, you know, I'll just say as an example, you know, Jim Allison, by the time I'm filming him has had a journey from, you know, his roots in rural Texas to um, storied position at the University of Texas, Austin, to Berkeley, to Memorial Sloan Kettering, to winning the Nobel Prize, to et cetera, et cetera, to back to MD Anderson, where he is, you know, at the center of pioneering immuno-oncology. And he has kicked off a revolution that's going wildly beyond his initial ideas, as um, you know, science does, right? He kicked off a revolution and now there's evolution everywhere. He had not been back to his this, this very small hometown where he had a you know, very complicated adolescence. Uh, in 40 years, when I asked him to drive, I said, but it's, it's only a couple hours from here. He said, yeah, I haven't been in 40 years. And I said, how would you like to go? And he goes, no, I'm not sure I really want to go. <laughs> but he very generously did come with me. And, um, and we went back to Alice, Texas. I think, as is often the case with people who um, I make films with, it's a voyage for discovery for them, too. They discover who they are in a different way than they understood before. And I think that Jim walking the streets where his, you know, where he was as a child and where his brothers lived and, um, the school that he had been in and the challenges he had at the school. And this was a creationist Friday night lights, you know, no evolution kind of place, as you know, and um, reconnecting to it, you know, it turned out, I think, to, to give Jim something as well as I hope you or something. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by the Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, City of Hope, SWOG Cancer Research Network, and the Hope Foundation for Cancer Research, 
Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Sarah Cannon Research Institute, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center, and many others. View a few list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.